Okay, well, can I have you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. And let's just uh, start at verse 1 again. Yeah, started last week, but uh, let's go back, get a running start on today's study. 2 Peter 3 verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now, Peter began the second chapter of this epistle telling us that even as there were false prophets and teachers among God's people in the Old Testament period, so there would be false prophets and false teachers among God's people in the New Testament church age. And now in chapter 3, he tells us that they would dramatically increase. So they've always been around ever, ever since God called Israel out of Egypt. False teachers and prophets have always been around. But Peter tells us that they would dramatically increase in number the closer that we got to Jesus' return, something that he himself told us would happen in the Olivet Discourse, which we looked at briefly last time, Matthew 24, where he told us very clearly that the time just prior to his return would be characterized by unprecedented worldwide spiritual deception. Now, those who study the cults for a living will tell you that sometime around the middle 1800s, something began to happen. A wave of Christian cults sprang up in greater numbers than ever before, no doubt in fulfillment of Bible prophecy. The, uh, Mormonism got its start in the 1830s. Millerism, which morphed into seven-day Adventism, also got its start in the 1830s. Jehovah's Witnesses started in the 1870s, and so did the Christian Science Church also started in the 1870s. And guys, there have been many other uh, groups, cults that started around that time and since, again, as the Bible predicted. So we know the spiritual deception is uh, ramping up. However, there are a lot of people that aren't spiritually minded that Satan wants to mislead also. And that's why we need to add to the list of false teachers those false teachers in the secular world who mock the Bible like atheists, agnostics, and others who hold to a view of world history that is completely natural as opposed to supernatural in origin. This belief system is known as naturalism. Naturalism. Naturalism is the reigning ideology of our day. You may not know that, but it is embraced by most of the intellectuals, scientists, educators, politicians, and judges, not only in our country, but around the world. A naturalist believes that God only exists as a fantasy in the minds of religious non-intellectuals. That's how they think of us, okay? Um, in our universities, naturalism, and again, I'm defining it as the belief that nature is all there is, and everything came into existence through natural processes without any divine fiat or supernatural input. 
But naturalism is, virtu is the virtually unquestioned assumption upon which all matters of life are based, at least in the secular Western mindset. Of course, naturalism, and now I'm looking at it as, a, as, as those who worship um, the world, there are those that worship nature. And of course, that's nothing new. Paul talked about it. And those who practice it in Romans chapter 1, you might as well turn there. Naturalism, we can also define it as those that worship the natural world. Paul talked about these in Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 22. I love how he says, and they claim to be wise. Uh, those who have embraced naturalism think they are the smartest people in the room all the time. And you folks that cling to the Bible, you are a foolish, uh, stupid, non-intellectual. You're not even worth talking to. It's how they feel. But uh, Paul said of these folks, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Well, does, isn't it say the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Jump down to verse 24. He said, So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Now, naturalism, guys, forms the foundation for the theory of evolution first proposed by Darwin in 1859. So those pesky 1800s, okay? Um, you know, it's interesting that one of the greatest revivals this country has ever seen took place in the 1850s. And uh, so it's interesting that Satan was trying to counter a move of the spirit uh, with an onslaught of lies, both spiritual and secular, okay? But uh, the uh, naturalism forms the foundation for the theory of evolution, first proposed by Darwin in 1859. And ever since that, the devil has worked very hard over the last 160 years through the teaching of evolution to cause people to believe that there is no God who created us and that we are nothing more than a cosmic accident. And therefore, life has no real meaning or purpose. Of course, this is directly opposite to what the Bible says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1. And so, guys, in the first verse of the Bible, we have the basis for a theistic worldview, the belief that everything in the natural realm was created by a supernatural deity. Now, this stands in direct opposition to naturalism, which says that in the beginning, nothing produced everything all by itself. They don't like when you boil it down to the basics, because it sounds stupid. And it is. So they try to dress it up with a lot of high-sounding verbiage. Remember what Peter said? They speak great, swallowing words of emptiness, okay? Uh, when you talk about spiritual teachers, false teachers, or uh, scientists that uh, embrace this. But let me just say this. I believe this is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, heresy of the last days. Naturalism, evolution, and the church is not immune to its effects. I read an article a while back that says every year churches from all over the world celebrate the birth of Charles Darwin. Now, Charles Darwin was born on February 12, 1809. 
So uh, on the closest Sunday to February 12th every year, churches from all over the country uh, celebrate what they call Evolution Sunday. Uh, the author says the day is celebrated with programs and sermons intended to emphasize that his theory of biological evolution, listen, is compatible with faith and that Christians have no need to choose between religion and science. Evolution Sunday, uh, the author says, has drawn participation from a variety of denominational and non-denominational churches, including Methodists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, uh, Unitarians, Congregationalists, United Church of Christ, Baptists, and a host of community churches, end quote. One well-known pastor disagrees that evolution and the Christian faith are compatible and uh, not in conflict with, with one another, and he offers this stinging critique of evolution. He said, and I quote, to put it simply, evolution was invented in order to eliminate the God of Genesis and thereby to oust the lawgiver and obliterate his inviolability. You can't violate God's word is the idea, but uh, he says that people have clung to evolution because it, it served to eliminate the God of Genesis and thereby oust him, obliterate his law. He said evolution is simply the latest means our fallen race has devised in order to suppress our innate knowledge and the biblical testimony that there is a God and that we are accountable to him. By embracing evolution, modern society aims to do away with morality, responsibility, and guilt. Society has embraced evolution with such enthusiasm because people imagine that it eliminates the judge and leaves them free to do whatever they want without guilt and without consequences, end quote. Well, of course that's true because evolution is amoral. And so by rejecting the God of the Bible, who is a moral God, right, and replacing him with the God of naturalism, people do this because they then feel free to live any way they want, or so they think. And so many have enthusiastically embraced evolution in their desire to live unrighteously. Turn to Romans 1. You know, how did man explain everything apart from God? It was a problem. And that's why in the old days people were more polytheistic than atheistic. It's only been in the last 150 years or so, that 160 years really, uh, that um, the devil has given mankind a plausible, at least in the minds of the secular, a plausible explanation for the existence of everything apart from God. And from what I have studied about Darwin, and he picked up a lot of his ideas about evolution from a guy named, uh, I think it was Lyle. But Darwin was upset by the teaching of hell and didn't want to see his loved ones go to hell. So he set about to come up with uh, an explanation for the existence of everything apart from God. And there's some interesting things what happened to him. Um, he got sick, had a high fever, and in this kind of a fevered state, something began to speak to him and lead him down this path. And, uh, of course, we know it was the devil. But uh, it's interesting how uh, the theory of evolution has become such a bedrock foundational belief in our supposedly scientific 
age, right? But many have enthusiastically embraced the teaching of evolution because, uh, not because it's good science, whether they know it or not, because they want to live any way they want to live and don't want God messing with their life. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul tells us that the reason people want to get rid of God is because they want to live unrighteously. And if, you, if there's a God out there looking over their shoulder, that's going to produce guilt. And guilt is not fun to live with. So no guilt, no God. Do away with God is the idea. But Paul said that God has made himself known so clearly by the creation that if they look into the creation and reject the existence of God, God will hold them accountable on the day of judgment. Do you realize when you open the Bible and it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You ever wonder why God didn't say, okay, now uh, I want to explain who I am and why you should believe in me. Some truths are self-evident. You can't have a podium without a builder. You can't have creation without a creator. Anymore, you can have a painting without a painter, a sculpture without a sculptor. Some truths are self-evident. God made us smart enough to realize you can't have creation without a creator. Every effect had to have a cause. And the effect of creation, there had to be an ultimate cause, a divine cause, right? So that's why God says, look, I made you smart enough to realize that if you're going to reject me, uh, having looked at the creation, then you're going to be held accountable on the day of judgment. Look, if there is no God, uh, if man is just a cosmic accident like we're being told today, you know, the result of countless genetic mutations, now then there is no purpose or ultimate value to life, that's obvious, and even more obvious, no afterlife. And that leads to a philosophy, guys, of life that is nihilistic and hedonistic, the motto of which being, let's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die and that's it. This is all there is. Now, there are honest evolutionists, and one of them is uh, Dr. George Marsden, evolutionist. Here's what he said. I thought it was interesting, and I want to quote it to you. He said, and I quote, Creation scientists are correct in perceiving that in modern culture, evolution often involves far more than biology. The basic ideologies of our civilization, including its entire moral structure, are at risk. Evolution is sometimes the key mythological element in a philosophy that functions as a virtual religion, end quote. Well, not a virtual religion, an actual religion. In fact, as one author put it, naturalism has now replaced Christianity as the main religion of the Western world, and evolution has become naturalism's principal dogma, end quote. And so, guys, theism leading to creationism and naturalism leading to evolution are competing belief systems. It's not faith versus science, as I've heard the, the argument frame, right? You have faith. We have facts. I've heard that from evolutionists. They don't have 
facts, and it isn't science, because science only deals by its very definition with the observable. Nobody has seen evolution taking place. Therefore, at best, it's a belief system and what we would call scientism. And that's exactly what it is, okay? Scientism. It's a belief system. And so you have two competing belief systems that lead to two entirely different ways of looking at life and ultimately two different ways of living one's life. Let me just frame it just quickly, okay? The Bible says that God made man a little lower than the angels. Wow. God made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor, Psalm 8, verse 5. But most of the Western world, and I'm thinking of academia in particular, has rejected the Creator and has embraced evolution, which teaches that man evolved a little higher than the apes. Now, guys, that's a huge difference, a huge difference. You see, if you remove God-slash-creation from society and substitute naturalism-slash-evolution as God, you remove the uniqueness of man from the animal kingdom. Look, the Bible says that God made man in his image. We were made in the image of God. But if there's no God, then God couldn't have made us in his image. And therefore, man is no different from any other animal that evolved on this planet, which is exactly what our public schools teach our children from the time pretty much they enter kindergarten. But here's the problem. If we teach our kids that they came from animals, it shouldn't shock us when they act like animals. We see kids growing up in our society without God, without morals, who place little or no value on human life. We see gangs. They've taken over the inner cities, fighting each other over drug turf, killing innocent people that get caught in the crossfire. But who cares? Life is cheap. We see kids bringing guns to school and wiping out classmates simply because they didn't like the way somebody looked at them. Or... Uh, or talk to them or about them on Facebook or some other social media platform. I mean, but what do we expect? From the time these kids started public school, they've been taught a humanistic, naturalistic worldview, a philosophy of life void of God where they evolved from animals, a worldview where everything came about by chance and genetic accidents. And guys, there is no purpose for life, no life to come, and no God to answer to. Now, that is a formula for great evil, great evil. I mean, it's taught many of these kids. I'm not saying all kids feel this way because you still have Christian parents, of course, who teach their kids the Bible. You have even secular kids that their friends maybe take them to youth group or they've gone to Awanas and they have some spiritual foundation laid. But more and more, we're seeing our kids growing up in totally secular homes, totally secular environments. Then they come to school, and they learn that there is no God, there is no afterlife, there is no uh, standing before God and giving an account. And so they grow up pretty much believing that life has no meaning, no purpose, and it's not very valuable. You see, any philosophy of life that's based on the idea of survival of the fittest, you know, the strong eliminating the weak, as the basic means of evolving from lower forms of life to higher, more complex forms, which is exactly what evolution teaches. If that's the ideology that's governing man's thinking and shaping his worldview, well, guess what? 
it's going to produce a lot of evil consequences, and it has. If evolution is true and we are just animals that have evolved higher than any other animals in the animal kingdom, listen to me, then why should we bother helping the weak, the handicapped, the elderly, and the sick? Let's do away with them. Let's embrace infanticide and euthanasia. I mean, why keep these people around if they're just, you know, keeping the rest of us down? By draining the resources needed to strengthen the genetically superior. I mean, if evolution is true, then Hitler was right. Think about that. Now, Hitler was a big fan of Charles Darwin and a big proponent of evolution. In fact, he sought to hasten the process of evolution on human beings and bring about a master or a, uh, a, a superior super race by exterminating all those whom he considered genetically inferior and less involved, the strong killing the weak, his own version of natural selection. And who could argue with him if evolution is true? But of course it isn't true, and here's why. First of all, more and more scientists, listen, are being forced to admit, based on advancements in genetics, that evolution is impossible. It's impossible because the genetic coding in each cell's DNA will never produce anything else. And any mutations in the cell are almost always bad and produce devolution, not evolution. I'm talking about macroevolution, not microevolution. Microevolution is changes within a kind, adaptations. God allowed for that, but he never allowed for macroevolution, one kind becoming another kind. And uh, evolutionists often point to microevolution to prove macroevolution. Hey, we understand God allows changes within a kind, but he has never allowed that one kind become another kind. But let's look at this from a little different angle. Where does compassion and mercy come from? Where does compassion and mercy come from? The evolutionists would say they evolved as we evolved. But listen, evolution doesn't produce compassion and mercy because evolution is based on the survival of the fittest, the strong preying on the weak. If the strong start showing mercy to the weak, it would undermine the very foundation upon which evolution is built, if it was true. I mean, listen, why is it when a tsunami or an earthquake or a plague of some kind hits some third world country, does the rest of the world, and I'm thinking primarily of the Western world rooted in the Judeo-Christian values. Why does the rest of the world mobilize and send, you know, workers, food, and medicine to those people? I mean, why do we worry about a little baby born four or five months premature and spend thousands, if not millions of dollars to save that child's life? I mean, isn't that a tremendous drain on our resources? Why not just let the child die? I mean, they're not a productive member of society. Why not just let natural selection take over and eliminate the weak? And the same goes for the elderly, who are no longer productive members of society and sap valuable resources from the 18 to 50-year-olds, who are the backbone and the productive members of society. Why do we do it? Because life is precious, all life. And why do we believe that life is precious? Because we have been made in the image of God, a merciful and compassionate God who created us and who placed the sanctity of life in our hearts. Folks, there is no mercy and compassion in the jungle. There is no mercy and compassion in the jungle. There is only survival of the fittest. Man is unique. 
and he's unique because his creator made us unique. When I was preparing this study, I remembered something that happened back in 1987. And I went online and Googled it to see if I could refresh my memory from all the details. And sure enough, I saw a video uh, that had been shot not long ago. You see, back in 1987, a little girl, a year and a half old, fell down her aunt's well in Texas. There was a hole in the ground. It wasn't very big, but it wasn't covered. She went out there and walked out there and fell 22 feet into this well shaft. The, the entire country mobilized. I remember watching it just spellbound, watching this. It took 56 hours to get her out of there. What they finally wound up doing was they dug a, a, a shaft next to that well, figured how far down she was, and then a firefighter bore through somehow, just underneath where that, she was, I think her name was Jessica, just underneath where baby Jessica was, he reaches up, and sure enough, there she was. He pulled her right out. Brought her up to the surface. Every, they had brought in special machinery from all over the country to help. Volunteers were out there nonstop for the whole time. Churches, Christians gathered together praying. And what they did was 30 years later, they showed her, and they interviewed her again. That's where I saw the thing, Right? Seems like a lot of trouble to go through for a year and a half old. If evolution's true, let her die. Why do we waste all the resources? She's not important. She's too weak to survive, let her die. Why should we spend millions of dollars to rescue one child? We do it because we're Christians, we live in a Christian nation, and God has made us in his image. And to him, life is precious, all life. The young, the elderly. That's why you'll never see a truly Christian nation kill their babies after they've been born or euthanize their elderly to get rid of them. That's not who we are because that's not who God has made us. We're unique. We're unique from all the other creatures God has made. We're unique because our Creator has made us unique. Only man has the capacity to reflect the glory of his Creator in the way of love, compassion, mercy, and kindness. Guys, the only explanation for morality is the existence of God who is a moral God and who made man in his image and put his moral law into our hearts. Creationism is the only thing that answers the question of man's origin and gives meaning to life. And those people that live a hedonistic, this life is all there is existence, that can carry them through a while. I always think of Hemingway, you know, on top of the world, you know, famous uh, man's man. He used to like to go hunting, and he was a brawler, and he was a tough guy, and uh, he liked to drink. And there's a lot of people who tried to get to him, you know, and Ernest, you know, what are you doing? How you're, this life, you've got to come to Christ. He would laugh at them because he was living large. Oh, you Christians, I don't need Christ. I'm doing just fine. Until 10 years later when he stuck his favorite shotgun in his mouth and blew his brains out. Only creationism answers the questions of man's origin and makes 
sense out of life. Hopefully, guys, now you see how important the first verse in the Bible is. It doesn't just introduce the book of Genesis. It becomes the foundation for understanding and living our lives upon the earth. In the beginning, God created. Without the first verse in the Bible, life is nothing more than an exercise in futility. In other words, life without God is a meaningless life not worth living. You question that, read the book of Ecclesiastes. But fortunately, that's not true. Not the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the idea that, you know, uh, that there's no purpose in life. There's no God, there's no re reason for us to be here and so on. That's not true. There is a God who created everything and everyone. In fact, the Bible says that not only are we not an accident, we are actually God's masterpiece. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, let me read the paraphrase. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us for a purpose. So we can do all the good works he planned for our lives even before we were born. And so, guys, God created you on purpose for a purpose. And he's been preparing you for that purpose, for that work, from before you were even born. You realize that? Paul said it, didn't he? When Paul the Apostle mentions how that in, in Genesis, excuse me, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, he's given his testimony, and he said, How it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. So Paul is saying that I was called by God into ministry while I was still in my mother's womb. You say, what, how does that work? The time in history where Paul was born, the place, the family he was born into, his natural attributes, everything about him was woven together in the womb by God because God had a specific purpose in mind for this man that he would not start fulfilling until a little later in life, but had been perfectly suited for. And then, of course, after he was born, having been born into a Jewish family, his father a Pharisee, well, he was sent to Jerusalem after he was bar mitzvah to study at the feet of one of the great leader, uh, teachers in Israel's history, Gamaliel, who said if there's, any, if there's anything wrong with Saul of Tarsus, no matter how many books I give him, scrolls, it's never enough. He just keeps wanting more. He had a voracious appetite, a brilliant mind. But God called him even from his mother's womb. Guys, our lives are the product of God's creative genius. Whether we live up to our potential or not is up to us. But I want you to just, I want to say it one more time, just so you know, you are not an accident as evolution teaches. So Peter is uh, warning us that in the last days, mockers will come, all right? And what primarily will they mock? Well, he goes on to tell us that the focus of their mocking will be to ridicule the biblical teaching that Jesus is going to literally and physically come back to the earth. See it here? Where is the promise of his coming? In the last days, mockers would come, Peter said, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Really? Seriously? Look, there are seven specific references in the New Testament to the new birth. There are 80 references to baptism, both water and spirit baptism, in the New Testament. But there are over 500 references in the entire Word of God with regard to the second coming. By far the broadest 
and most referenced subject in the Bible. So when people say, where is the promise of his coming? Uh, open your Bible, close your eyes, put your finger down, and you probably hit a prophecy somewhere. They're everywhere, okay? But in particular, guys, Peter tells us that they're going to mock the idea that Jesus was coming back. That's true. But primarily, primarily, they're going to mock the idea that God will judge the entire world, listen, with devastating cataclysmic judgments before Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom. You can read Revelation chapter 6 through 19. They're going to mock that idea. You know, we know the world mocks God's word and denies what the Bible teaches in so many different places. Do you realize that more and more Christian churches, and I use the term very loosely, they call themselves Christian churches. Do you know that more and more Christian churches are denying the basics, in particular, uh, that Jesus is coming back again? And they deny all kinds of other things. But it's interesting that as Peter said in the last days, mockers would come saying, where is the promise of his coming? And then they offer this sarcastic rebuttal. They just dismiss that idea out of hand and go on to say, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, now we're not sure if they're talking about the Jewish patriarchs or um, some secular gurus that people look to as the fathers of civilization. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Because these folks, and they probably make up a whole group of pe different people, right? Some Jewish, some supposed Christian, many secular. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Whether you realize it or not, Peter is laying out the doctrine of uniformitarianism. Naturalism forms the foundation for the theory of evolution. And evolution is built on the doctrine of uniformitarianism, which got its start in 1865, a few years after evolution started. What is uniformitarianism, you ask? And if you're not asking, I'm going to tell you anyways. The dictionary defines uniformitarianism as, and I quote, a geological doctrine that processes acting in the same manner as at present and over long spans of time are sufficient to account for all current geological features and all past geological changes. Do you get that? Let me paraphrase. In other words, all the geological changes that have taken place to the Earth's crust have taken, this is what the evolutionists believed, this, because they're, their belief is based on the doctrine of uniformitarianism, okay? That um, all geological changes to the Earth's crust have taken place slowly over long periods of time uniformly as opposed to suddenly through cataclysmic upheavals. That is known as catastrophism. That all the geological changes to the Earth didn't happen slowly over millions or billions of years. Most of the radical, and we'll talk a little bit about this next week, most of the radical transformations in the Earth's crust took place 
Suddenly, and I believe the flood was what caused these dramatic changes in the earth's crust and so on. We believe in catastrophism. Peter goes on, though, to indict these who are willfully ignorant on this subject. He said in verse 5, For this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Now, first of all, Peter <laughs> makes reference to the God of creation, right? That's a direct slam against naturalism. He says, for this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Peter says, first of all, look, those of you who think God never intervenes, first of all, those of you who think there is no God, let me just say again, yes, there is a God. He's made everything, all right? He wasn't shy about making stuff. I mean, you know, people think, well, if he's up there, he doesn't ever get involved in human affairs. Uh, that's wrong. Peter says, look, he brought forth the heavens and the earth, which at that time when God first made it, you can check out Genesis 1, uh, the earth was one large landmass. Uh, that stuck out of the water and in the oceans of the, of the earth. But God exists, Peter said. He wasn't shy about creating the physical universe in the first place. Furthermore, and he's laying, he's kind of building his argument. Furthermore, Peter goes on to say that God wasn't a distant deity. That's deism. Some people believe in deism. That, okay, God created everything, but now he's kind of retreated to a neutral, neutral corner, never gets involved in human affairs. Peter said, well, that's wrong also, because God wasn't a distant deity. He certainly wasn't shy when he intervened in human history by destroying the earth, the world, with the flood in the days of Noah. Now, it's interesting that he said with regard to the flood that the people of this world often willfully forget this fact. What, what did he mean? Well, look, since all mankind today can trace we can trace all of our genealogies back to Noah's three sons. Since all mankind came from Noah's sons, all mankind remembers the flood. Of the more than 200 cultures from all over the world, do you realize each of them has a flood story in their cultural history? They differ a little bit here and there, but listen, here are the commonality of their beliefs, okay? 80, we're talking about cultures from all over the world. 88% describe a favored family that survives. So they each have a flood story. 88% describe a favor fam favored family that survives. 70% uh, attribute their survival to a boat. 95% say the sole cause of the catastrophe was a flood. 66% say that the disaster was due to man's wickedness. 67% record that animals were also saved. 57% describe that the survivors ended up on a mountain. Many of the accounts also specifically mention birds being sent out, a rainbow, and eight persons being saved. Now, all the main cultures, from, they all have a flood story in their history. How is that possible? Because when Noah and his family disembarked 
from the ark after the flood. Of course, Noah's sons went on to have children, and those children had children, and so on. And eventually, God divided the earth, and because it was one large land mass, and uh, people then were spread over the face of the earth. And uh, but they took their history with them, their flood stories with them. Now, guys, look. As long as Peter brought it up, I'm going to stop because I wasn't planning on uh, teaching extra long because we didn't have worship tonight. But as long as Peter brought up the flood and uses it as a basis for teaching that another worldwide judgment is coming, I'd like next week to just briefly look at the flood. I'm not going to spend all night. Well, maybe I will. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I make you no promises. Uh, maybe two nights. Um, but as long as Peter brought it up, okay, uh, and he mentions the flood, and uses it as a basis to prove, look, all you folks who think that God never gets involved, you mock the, at the idea. If there is a God, he never gets involved in human affairs. Peter says, of this they are willfully ignorant, that God has intervened in human affairs in the past to destroy the world with a flood. He's going to intervene again, bringing a worldwide judgment upon the wicked. And again, read Revelation 6 through 19, right? But as long as he brought it up, let's briefly take a little time next week to uh, look at the flood and try to answer some of those that, uh, you know, mock and dismiss it as legend and not fact. They mock the idea of biblical catastrophism while embracing evolutionary uniformitarianism. And, uh, of course, you have the two competing belief systems at work there. You have the creation model and the evolutionary model. We've talked about this, okay? They're both faith systems. You can't prove either one with 100% certainty. So which one has more facts to back it up? Well, if you do your own study, you'll realize that the biblical account of creation, the flood, and so on has more facts and evidence by far to support those things as being true than the evolutionists said. You're, you're talked down to, you're ridiculed if you believe in the biblical account. You've got evolutionists that have a lock on our educational system, and they don't allow anyone to dissent. I've heard numerous stories of professors who, because of their own study, had come to realize, well, maybe we got it wrong. I mean, you know, genetically, it's, it's getting harder and harder to believe in evolution. Maybe we should rethink this. And just for suggesting that, they've been fired. You know how many museums around the world teach evolution, right? All over the world. One creation museum opens up and the world goes berserk. They were picketing out there, you know, and, and this is terrible, and, and, you know, what are you trying to teach our kids? Well, how about the truth, okay? The truth will set us free. What are you afraid of? If the evolutionary model is true, it will stand up to, the, to scrutiny. And if not, you should reject it and get on board with what the Bible teaches, the creation model, and a lot of scientists, by the way, are. A lot of scientists, by the way, are. I'll just tell you one quick story, we'll close. 
I heard this years ago at a pastor's conference. The gentleman's name was Dr. Richard Lum Lumsden, I believe, Lumsden. And he was the head of the science department at Tulane University, very heady place. And so, of course, he taught evolution to his classes. And um, one day, a, a young Christian student, he knew she was Christian, came up to him after class and said, Dr. Lumsden, can I ask you a few questions? He said, of course. And he said, she asked me all the standard Christian questions about evolution and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and, and why, uh, why wasn't creation something that I believed in and, and why do you believe in evolution? She was basically a very polite young lady. And Lumsden said, I gave her all the standard answers that evolutionists give people who question evolution. And she was very polite. She thanked him, turned around, and started walking away. And God, he said later, because he became a Christian, he said, I heard a voice inside my head go, if you believe what you just told that young lady, you're an idiot. Obviously, God had been working, right? And so he began to get into the Bible. He read it voraciously. He studied it like crazy. Eventually, he resigned from the university because he realized that there's no way I can stay here. He was becoming a committed creationist, and not just any creationist, a six-day creationist. His expertise was in the area of the human cell. In particular, his forte was cell membranes and things. What had always bothered him, and God began to really drive it home where he couldn't ignore it anymore, was that the cell membrane can't evolve slowly. It's got to be fully intact to keep everything in the cell together. It's like saying you could have a water balloon evolve slowly with the water and it doesn't work that way, right? And so he began to study this and realize it was not possible. And that was one of the things God began to use to um, deliver him from this deception. Well, he couldn't get a job for a long time, so he started a business and just to make enough money to provide for him and his family. Brilliant guy. And eventually, as I said, he went on to become a committed creationist. And uh, he actually would go around the country debating evolutionists until finally nobody would debate him any longer because he just destroyed them because he knew his stuff. He had been one of them. He said the only thing that makes sense is what the Bible teaches about God and creation. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says. I mean, and, and again, Darwin, when he first proposed the theory of evolution, the, the, the mentality back then was that the human cell was no more complex than a ping pong ball. So you could believe in evolution back then because there was so much ignorance with regard to the human cell, right? But as science has increased, in fact, I heard one scientist say, who was an uh, evolutionist at one time and now has become a creationist, he said, biologists still hang on to it. He said, but anybody who's a geneticist or even a mathematician, we all know evolution is impossible. It just doesn't work. But there are some who, it's a religion, so they hang on to it to the death. It's not about the facts for some people. It's about their job, 
the years they taught evolution, that's what all in vain. No, I got to hold on to my belief in evolution. Otherwise, my whole life is a sham. They make good money being professors. They, uh, you know, write books and so on. So for a lot of people, it isn't really the evidence that uh, brings them out of uh, evolution, although for many it is. I, and I'm hearing more and more scientists now who are becoming creationists, not because Christian has witnessed to them, although I'm sure that's true, but because they have done the research, they have studied the human cell DNA, and they realize based on the facts there's no way they can be evolutionists any longer. So we'll talk a little bit more next week, God willing, about the flood and um, why you can be confident that the biblical account of the flood is not some superstitious, wacko mythology that you stupid Christians cling to. There is a lot of evidence to prove that that story is in fact real. The evidence is there. We'll look at it a little bit next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It's truth. And in these last days of deception, both spiritual and secular, Give us grace, Lord, not to be embarrassed by anything in your word. But, Lord, give us grace to feed on it more voraciously than ever before. Father, these are the last days, and the devil's lies are rampant. And we have many people, and I'm sorry it breaks my heart to, to think of all those who profess to be Christians, who have capitulated to the scientific community, and refuse to believe what you clearly say in your word with regard to how everything began, the origin of the universe and mankind. Father, give us grace that we will stay true as a church to all that you have said. Let the world mock. Let Christians supposedly call themselves Christians. Let them mock and ridicule the simplicity and even stupidity of our faith. So be it. But, Lord, we want to be faithful to all that you have said, every word that proceeds from your mouth. We realize that the first few chapters of Genesis lay the foundation for civilization. And if we get it wrong, civilization will suffer and ultimately be destroyed. If we build our lives and our civilization on the truth of your word, we will stand. So, Lord, deliver our country from this deception. Bring about a great awakening and revival that will sweep across this nation, opening the eyes of millions, bringing them into your marvelous light and truth. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.